As we continue worship this morning, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61 is where we'll be this morning, Isaiah 61. We'll look at uh, all 11 verses this morning, uh, and uh, as we do so, I'll read the text within the sermon. Yeah, let's, uh, but uh, before we look to the direct trek, then uh, let me pray one more time. Father, uh, thank you for your word. May your spirit guide and lead our time of learning. Teach us, show us Christ as we've prayed. Help us to grow in our love for you, and our love for, uh, for one another because of Jesus Christ. Help us to, to know you more. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During uh, Jesus' ministry on earth, uh, people often disagreed and wondered who who he was. And uh, the real question, though, of course, was, is this, this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, is he the Christ? Even, if you remember, John the Baptist who was to be the forerunner, the, the one who would precede and, and be the messenger uh, that would go before Christ, he had his doubts as well. He who had witnessed the Spirit, of, the spirit descending uh, on Jesus and heard the voice of the Father uh, from heaven, he himself, while imprisoned, was unsure and doubtful. We're reading this uh, exchange that John's disciples have with Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 2 to 6. We read there an exchange, I put it up for us, of this between uh, the expression of his question. I'm going to read it for you. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Sort of unexpected, of course, for John the Baptist, but you can imagine if he believed that Jesus was the Christ, then what is he doing in prison? You know, he, he should be, this is Jesus supposed to have come in to, to reign. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So in response to their question, Jesus tells them to report to John what they, what they had witnessed, what they had heard, what they had seen that Jesus was doing. And there was a, there records the long list. And most of these things on this list are all miracles, things of a miraculous nature, signs and wonders that he had performed. But at the end of his list, Jesus ends with a, a quote from Isaiah. Not a miracle, but a st- pure statement of what he did is that is the poor, that is the, the humble have the gospel, the good news, preached to them. If you see, uh, at least in the New American Standard, that's all in the small cap. So you know it's a quote, a quote from the Old Testament. And what Jesus did there is that he took a very exact quote from Isaiah 61, a chapter that reveals a messianic prophecy, particularly the re- a prophecy concerning the mission of the Messiah. That is, what the, the Messiah would come to do, that he would come to bring good news. He would come to bring the gospel to the poor, the afflicted and humble. And that's what Jesus was doing. 
And that's what they saw and that's what they heard. And they would go back and report to John these words. Jesus simply pointed himself back to, to the scriptures whenever for their question, am I the Messiah? What did the scriptures say? And what do you see me doing? Jesus himself was essentially testifying that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And so today we come to this wonderful chapter of Isaiah chapter 61 that reveals to us the Messiah. It shows us Christ. It shows us his mission, why he would come. And when it comes to the crux of the very heart of the Christian faith, it is really the question of who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? For many, and I hope for all in this room, that we will be able to answer that. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is our Savior and our God. Is he the expected one that the Jews looked for salvation? Today, as we study this mission of the Messiah, we'll see how Jesus is the Messiah. He is Messiah of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61. And I hope that by understanding more of his mission today, I pray that we would all come to know more of our, of our Savior, but also that we won't know more of our God who sent us his Savior. And I hope that it will cause you to rejoice in the salvation that we have, that you would delight in him, our glorious Christ, that he would truly be our greatest delight. As we mentioned before, we are in that last section of Isaiah. We've been through Isaiah up to this point. We've, we come to these last nine chapters, 58 through 66, where Isaiah or comforts Israel. God comforts through Isaiah's prophecy. He comforts Israel through the promise of the deliverer who will come to judge the world and to deliver Israel. And as we focus on his mission today in, the, in our chapter, we're going to see this spirit-empowered mission of the messianic servant. And this spirit-empowered mission that he has, as we look at its details, will give us reason to rejoice in his coming. So uh, it's often said, you remember, we looked at those four servant songs earlier in Isaiah, ending with the great one in Isaiah 53. Well, some call this the fifth servant song because of its focus on the messianic servant. And in fact, he himself speaks in this. And you know, I would agree that it's, we could classify this as a fifth servant song. But as we look at the outline today, we're going to look at this three-point outline, three characteristics of the Messianic Servant's mission. Three characteristics of the Messianic Servant's mission. So let's take a look at this. First characteristic of the Messiah's mission is that the servant's mission would be a spirit-empowered mission. He would be come in the power of the Spirit. And verses 1 to 3. Well, let's read verse 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. When we come to this text, even though 
from the New Testament perspective, we would all believe that this is the this is the speaking the Messiah speaking. Uh, from a Bible study perspective, we always want to ask: Is who is speaking here? Uh, what's the, is this Isaiah? Because Isaiah is the one writing this. Is he's when we see a first person uh, pronoun, is he speaking of himself, or is the Messiah speaking here? But the clue is for us that of the term anointed. The word anointed that's used here uh, weighs in favor of the fact of the Messiah. Because in the Hebrew, the word for anointed is the word from which we get our English word, Messiah. Uh, what's more, in verse 1, as we looked at this association between the Spirit and the Lord's anointed, that term, the Spirit and the and anointing, of the, which is usually true use of anointing someone with oil, that terminology or that pair is found in only two other Old Testament texts. And both involve the anointing of Israelite kings, Saul and David, in 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 16. And so the use of it here implies that the speaker, when he, as he is speaking himself, and where the Lord has anointed me, he is speaking himself as an anointed king of Israel. He is the prince of peace who sits on the throne of David, according to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. So the Messiah then really is speaking here, a revelation of his mission. He himself is speaking and revealing to uh, the people of Israel what he would come to do. And so we see this, uh, this uh, mission. And first of all, we learn that his mission is a spirit-empowered mission, or overall, it is a spirit-empowered mission. He'll be, that is, he'll be filled with the spirit. As you know, in the Old Testament, not all the Old Testament saints were filled with the Spirit. It was a very special thing, a unique thing, when someone would have the Spirit of God come upon them. When the Spirit of God God came upon them, it would be for a very special, unique task. Isaiah, of course, had written of the Messiah's Spirit-empowered mission, or being filled with Spirit empowerment, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 2. We read there, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You know, whenever God gives us a task, sometimes we wonder, well, can, how can I do it? But we are reminded that we, God's given us his spirit. His power, spirit enables us, empowers us to do the work. And the Messiah himself also depends upon the spirit for his work. It is a divine enablement that gives him wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the appropriate fear of the Lord. And so in the remainder of these verses, the servant reveals how the spirit empowerment of the, uh, of the Messiah enables him to fulfill a very specific mission. It is a, a, as we look at this, uh, it will see it will be a six-fold mission. And I want to just walk through some of those things. Number one, he, his, he is a... His spirit-empowered, if you will, purpose-driven mission is, comes for six purposes. And that purpose, number one, is that he will come and bring good news to the afflicted. He'll preach the gospel to the afflicted. This word can also be translated as poor. That's why in the New Testament it's translated as poor. But the general idea is someone who is bowed low in humility. The Messiah will come to preach good news. Good news to those who are living in a in circumstances that are all basically bad news that breaks you. You know, sometimes if you live long and sometimes you go through life, there are times when you are brought low. 
your, the burdens of maybe sin or the, the circumstance or maybe trials or, or maybe uh, illnesses that come into your life and they bring you low. And most, almost every, every uh, trial in this life, every uh, bad uh, wickedness that we can experience in this life is all pointed because of sin. When we are brought low, we are reminded that we need the gospel. We need the good news. And the Messiah comes to bring the good news of the gospel, a gospel that's focused upon the salvation that he brings. He brings it for those who are humble, those who are poor, those who are afflicted. He brings us hope for those of us who are in a spiritually bankrupt condition. That's what the Messiah comes to do. Secondly, he, he comes to heal the brokenhearted. He will heal the brokenhearted. You know, we really often think of brokenhearted as basically when you have that first breakup. <laughs> you remember that first breakup? <laughs> yeah. uh, you kind of feel that, oh, that, that heart pain that you felt, and you kind of, oh, I'm so sad. You know, it's like the end of the world. I want to just listen to my MTV for a couple hours straight. Uh, that's my gen- I just exposed my generation to you. Uh, but, you know, God, more than brokenheartedness. Brokenheartedness becomes because of sin, because of guilt, because of rejection, and because of loss. But no matter the cause of brokenness for your heart, no matter what it is that breaks you, the Messiah comes to heal them all. He comes to heal the brokenhearted. Number three, he comes and he will come to proclaim deliverance to those in bondage. He come and proclaim freedom, liberty. The term proclaim liberty is a term that is used in in uh, the text in uh, Leviticus 25.10 regarding the year of Jubilee. Remember the year of Jubilee would be that 50th year. After seven times seven years, the 49 years, there'd be a 50th year, a year of Jubilee, according to Israel law. And in that year of Jubilee, there would be a proclamation of liberty, of freedom. All those who were particularly indentured servants who had sold themselves into slavery of a sort because they were poor and they lost their possessions, lost their land, they would be basically set free to go. And everything that was lost would be restored to those who had sold them. See, Jubilee sets free these servants from their debts. Their debts are forgiven. When the Messiah comes, he comes in a similar way to declaim or proclaim that there is, their debts are forgiven. Whatever bondage you are in because of your debts, you are set free from them, set free from the bondage of sin. Fourthly, when the messianic servant comes, he will come to proclaim the coming of the Lord to save and to judge. He will proclaim God's favor. He will proclaim God's vengeance in this text. And it's kind of just encouraging. You note that the length of his favor is a year, whereas the length of his vengeance is a day. If you, God's favor is in abundance. See, when the Messiah comes, he will announce God's abundant grace as well as God's consuming fire. Fifthly, uh, he will come and he will comfort those who mourn, according to the text. Uh, and then sixthly, close, uh, closely associated with that is he will give joy to those who mourn. And that is, for those who mourn for whatever reason in this world, they will, that, that sadness, that sorrow is going to be no more. Because God's going to comfort them. And he's going to replace their, their sorrow with gladness. His provision will result in them to, to grow, and, and the, they become like large trees, large oak trees, characterized by stability, a stability of, of that's, um, that's uh, 
that is uh, full of righteousness. They will become trees that are known because they're planted by the Lord. They'll be trees that, that grow for his glory. And that's what will happen to the people of Israel when the Messiah comes. So now that we know that the Messiah would have a spirit-empowered mission, we ask ourselves, well, that's what he's going to do. Who is this? If you can just put yourselves in the Israelites' shoes as they're reading this for the first time, the Isaiah's, in Isaiah's day or even the Israelites in the captivity, who is this Messiah? Or even if you could read it in Jesus' day, who is this? How do we know that this text, Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3, is speaking of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Because he claimed to be. He did so, in fact, by directly quoting this text. If you remember, or, you, or you, we mentioned before, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 21, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, uh, just shortly after, he selected 12 disciples to follow him and to go around. He started going to their towns. That is, he went to the, basically the towns of the disciples. And he went there to preach and teach. He would go into the synagogues, and there he would start beginning to minister. And we read uh, what he did in verse 14, 4, 16 to 21. I'll read this for you. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can just probably imagine sitting in the synagogue that day. Uh, everybody's jaws probably dropped. This is Jesus of Nazareth. It's like this is, this is Roger Vesta Bible. We've seen him grow up in our town. We've seen him grow up here. We all know his mom and dad. We know his family. And he just said that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy, Isaiah 61. Jesus declared himself the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He declared himself to be the messianic servant. But, and so that alone tells us that Jesus believed that he was the Messiah. He declared it by, and he practically said it, though may not in a direct way. But notice, if you will, as he quotes Isaiah 61, he quotes all of verse 1, and he then he begins to quote verse 2, but he ends right in the middle of quoting verse 2. He ends with that phrase to, where he says, He will come to declare or proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He doesn't read the other half of the verse. He doesn't declare, say that he comes to proclaim the day of vengeance. So even what we glean from this and from this text is that Jesus is revealing that he will come in, in, a, in two 
in two uh, advents, two parts. There's a first coming when he comes, and, he, and that which was fulfilled at that very moment, he's coming to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He's coming to declare that God's favor, God's grace, through his inevitable death on the cross, God offers grace to sinners who repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. Now that he is risen and ascended to heaven, we are awaiting his second coming, a second time when he will return, when he will proclaim God's vengeance. And when he comes, he will come to proclaim the day of vengeance of God. He will come to judge the enemies of God. He will come to save the Israel, the people of God. And so what we understand as we continue, we go back to Isaiah 61, that everything that follows from the latter half of verse 2 all the way through verse 11 is really the description of the Messiah's coming, his mission at his second coming. You can just kind of underline that's just normal pro- uh, prophecy that we've been learning, that there's always this kind of, uh, from afar, it looks like the two mountains are, are next to each other, but as you come closer, you realize there's a, there's a large distance of, between the two mountains. And that's kind of where we, when we think about the first and second coming of Christ in all of uh, Old Testament prophecy. And so, mission, purpose number, or uh, characteristic number one is that the Messiah's mission would be uh, a mission that where he would come and be a spirit empowered to do all these things, to declare and proclaim the good news. And Jesus was that, is this Messiah. Secondly, we learn a second characteristic. And this is a fascinating thing, and that is that the servant's mission would be a transformational mission. It would be a mission that would come and change all of Israel. It would make them different in a very significant way. Well, I, look, I think of this as calling the, the results of his mission. There will be significant changes taking place in Israel when the Messiah comes again. It's just interesting, when we do our study through this text, we'll notice that the pronouns change from they um, to you, you second person plural, and then it changes back to they. And, and despite the change of pronouns, both pronouns are referring to those who mourn in Zion from, and back in verse 3 which is Israel. So this is a reference to Israel, and just kind of the, just uh, bear with the, the changing of the pronouns. Uh, it's not certain why they changed the pronouns, but uh, maybe an emphasis where uh, one is speaking of them in, from, a, from a distance and a huge, whereas God is speaking directly, addressing the people directly for emphasis. But as we think about Israel, it will, they will be changed when the Messiah comes. There's going to be a transformation in, in their lives. And, and we can see several things that are going to be changed for Israel. First of all, we're going to see that their ruins are changed. The ruins of Israel will be transformed. Verse 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Uh, <clears throat> The ruins of Jerusalem, that is what's left over after destruction, after war, after, just after time, will one day be rebuilt in Jerusalem. You ever, I've never gone to Jerusalem, but uh, it's such an old city. I suppose you can go there and find some ruins. We can all, I think the most famous ruins is the ruins of the temple, uh, the, the, the western wall of the temple that still sits there where everybody still, the Jewish, Jewish people still go to pray, even though there is no temple, but they pray there at the wall, a ruin. But as we learn here from this text, that one day when the Messiah comes back, all the ruins of Israel, not just in Jerusalem, but all throughout Israel, will be rebuilt. Even their cities will be rebuilt. 
the desolations of many generations. And it has been literally many generations since the destruction of these ruins. When Messiah returns and reigns, everything that was destroyed will be rebuilt. Now, in addition to this change in the ruins, there's going to be a change in the relationships. The change of Israel's relationships with the Gentiles. For the most part, throughout Israelite history, Israel and the Gentiles, surrounding Gentiles have been at enmity. But we're going to find, verse 5, this is what, that their relationship with Gentiles will change. Strangers will stand and pastor your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. Uh, there is going to be a, a cooperation and partnership between Israel and the Gentiles. Uh, the distrust and enmity that exists in Israel today will be replaced with trust and peace when the Messiah comes. We also see that there's going to be a change in their role, Israel's role. In verse 6, we read, But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You remember from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that God intended Israel to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests, that a whole nation of priests, that is, they would serve as a role of, of the role of knowing God and mediating between God and the nations of the earth. But Israel had failed to do that. She often uh, followed along after the nations and worshiping their idols. But in the second coming of Christ, they will fulfill their role. They will all know the Lord, greatest to the least. They will all serve the Lord as priests, as mediators between, Israel, between God and the nations. And this will take place in that what we call the millennial kingdom. When the nations are going to bring their treasures to Israel for worship. And this marks a, another change in Israel, change in their riches. It says there at the latter half of verse 6, You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. As Levitical priests who had lived off the contributions of the sacrifice... So also, all Israel will one day live off the contributions that are brought to them by the nations. Lastly, there will be a change in Israel's reputation, verses 7 through 9. It's a lengthy section. Let me read it for you. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. It says here that Israel will have a double portion. And we know from the Old Testament that the double portion was something that the firstborn son would receive. And Israel was called the firstborn of God. They're his chosen nation, the first chosen nation through whom he would bless the families of the earth. And so they will one day receive that double portion. And the question is, what is that double portion? Is it money? Is that what we're talking about? But it's probably not money because notice what the contrast is. This is a contrast. The double portion or their portion is in contrast to the shame that they experience, the humiliation that they experience. They will experience a double portion in their land where they will experience everlasting joy. The promise, the, the portion or the double portion that they're going to receive is basically all that God has promised to give to them, all that is their inheritance. 
all that has been promised through the Abrahamic covenant to them, repeated in the Davidic covenant to them, and the new covenant to them, they will experience everlasting joy. No longer would they hide in shame. No longer uh, would they uh, bow their heads in humility. Now they would shout with joy. All these changes would take place when the Messiah comes. Their reputation will be changed. Verse 8, though, stands out. Because it reminds Israel why God does what he does. He says, for I, the Lord, love justice. Why is this change going to happen to you? Because he loves justice. When the Lord comes to save Israel and bring about the fulfillment of uh, all his promises and transforms them and makes them into a nation that has a, 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 a reputation that is known throughout the nations. They will be sought by the nations. Why does he do this? Why does he come to save them? Why does he come to change them and make them uh, the jewel of all nations? It's because of his justice, he says. It's kind of odd, to tell you the truth, when you think of the explanation, I think many of us would expect, why does God come to save? Well, it's because of his mercy, because of his compassion, we think, because of his love. We don't expect God to save because I've come to save you because of my, I love justice. When we think of justice, we think that's why he's going to come and show his wrath to us. That's why he's going to judge sinners. In fact, when people sin, as the Israelites were, were guilty of, that is robbery, even in the midst of their offerings, of their worship, we expect God's justice to punish such acts. And certainly, God dis, did and disciplined Israel by sending them into captivity, into Babylon, as well as Assyria. But we don't expect his justice to be the reason he saves. But it is. That's the kind of really neat thing about this text. It reminds us that God doesn't save just because of love and mercy and compassion. He does. He also saves us because of justice. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, we read, uh, studied earlier. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he wants on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. See, God desires to be gracious and show compassion to those who who repent and trust in him. Why? Because he's a God of justice. We kind of wonder, how is grace and compassion tied to God's justice? How can he show justice? How can he save because of justice? Because, as you and I have known, especially when we study Isaiah 53, he sent his son to be pierced through for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to be chastened for our well-being, to be scourged so that we may be healed. You see, God had already expressed and made clear that he would send his son, his servant, to come and pay the penalty for transgressors and those who are guilty of iniquity. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, the punishment And because we know Christ has already come, the punishment has already been dispensed upon Christ for all of our sins. And because of that, it would be unjust for God to require a second payment of the penalty for sins. It is his justice, then, that enables him to show favor to us. Because God is just. 
He's already punished someone for all our sin. And that is his son, the Messianic servant. See, because of his justice, God will bless Israel with an everlasting covenant, a new covenant, according to Isaiah 59, 21, or if you remember. The nations will see the transformation in the people of God as a result, and they will then have this reputation among the nations as those whom the Lord has blessed. Everyone will see it. Everyone will recognize it. They will no longer say, that's a cursed nation. Look how surrounded they are by their enemies. Instead, everyone will say, that is a blessed nation. Look at all the nations that will strive and run to them to look for the truth and life and light. You want to remember that these changes will be applied to Israel in the future. And as we read this text, this is not about the church. There are some millennials, who, uh, brethren, who believe that this is all speaking of the church, but this is not. These are all words that apply directly to the nation, the chosen nation of God, the, the Israelites in the future. But having said that, we can still apply some of the principles here to us today. And that is the principle that God is still the same. God is still a God of justice. And we, in fact, we who are on the other side of Christ, of the cross of Christ, can be more certain of God's salvation because his servant has already paid the penalty for all our sins. We've seen it. We, we read about it. We know it to be true. We can have certainty that he will save. In the final two verses, we see one last aspect of the Messiah's mission. The servant's mission is going to be, or will be, a God-glorify mission. A mission that brings rejoicing. Rejoicing. We read verse 10 and 11. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. You notice in this last section, the subject returns to the first person. And so we ask again, as we uh, faithful students of the word, we ask, who is speaking here? First of all, it's not the Lord God himself, because praise is directed to him. So the choice is between two, perhaps three possibilities. Either it's Isaiah, or the people of, who represents the people of God, in the nation of Israel, Zion, Jerusalem even, or the Messiah is speaking here. And both are possible interpretations. Both, the text allows for both. Uh, you, would be a, you would not be a heretic to say one or the other first. Uh, so uh, don't stone me when I tell you what I believe. Uh, but in either case, I want you to understand that whoever is speaking here, the end result is the same, that God is praised for his salvation. God is the, the source of salvation. Salvation belongs to him. He is the one who provides it, and therefore he is worthy of our praise. There's great rejoicing in him because of that. My conviction is that the Messiah is speaking here. It is the very Messiah who spoke in the first person in verses 1 to 3 is speaking here in verse 10 to 11. 
both, by the way, uh, whichever interpretation you take, uh, has, is rich in, rich in theology here. See, when the Messiah returns to bring salvation to Israel and bring God's plan of salvation to completion, he will lead in rejoicing and exulting in God. Why? Because he knows that salvation is from God. God has clothed him with salvation and righteousness. Now, some may object that the Messiah, he doesn't need to be clothed, being the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself. He possesses salvation. He possesses righteousness. Why does he need to be put on or be clothed with salvation and righteousness? But the idea of clothing here does not simply, uh, does not convey a receiving necessarily of of, uh, salvation and righteousness, but really conveys the character or the commitment of the one who is clothed. The character and the commitment of one clothed. Back in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16 and 17, I'll throw it up for you here. When God, remember this, this wonderful text, when God saw Israel in a sinful condition, and he saw that there was no one to save them, he saw that there was no one to intercede for them, what did he do? He himself brought it upon himself to save them. And it's described in verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And when we see that, it's not that God didn't have it at one moment and then he later on had it. But it really reveals that his ability, that his character, when he puts on these things as we described in an anthropomorphic way, it's revealing that his ability to save, he possesses salvation, he possesses righteousness, and he is intent to come and save Israel. And so now in the same way, the Messiah is sent by the Lord to bring salvation. He has the ability to save. He has the intent to save the character and commitment that is necessary. And I believe this is illustrated by the illustration that follows. The illustration here, he is described as a bridegroom, as a bride, we see. And it's both, both the bridegroom and bride. And what's the particular illustration that we see here? Well, it describes as the bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is basically saying, well, you know that basically when people get married, they wear appropriate things. The bridegroom puts on a garland, something on his head. The the bride will uh, wear appropriate jewels. Just like in our day, when you go to a wedding, you you shouldn't have any difficulty finding out who the bride and the groom are, right? They'll be dressed in a very specific way. You know, you don't you know, you know don't wear white. You know, anybody else who's not the bride, you know, she alone wears white on that day. Okay, and the groom, make sure you don't dress as well as the groom. Don't wear your tux or. Well, nowadays, uh, grooms, you guys are you know, bringing it down a little bit. So, uh, so that's okay. They look just like a groomsman. Hey, just look for the guy who's smiling the most. But that is the kind of the case. They would people would dress on that day, the bridegroom and the bride, in a way that would identify who they are. But it doesn't just identify who they are, the, the, that they're the bride and they're the groom, but it also just indicates their intent. When you wear certain clothes, it tells you your intent. When I put on, we, we all read, uh, man, the, those uh, kids in Thailand, right? And we thought, when you put on scuba gear, what does it tell you what I'm going to do? I'm going to go play tennis. No, I'm going to go scuba diving, right? So you wear certain clothes. You put on a postman outfit, you know, or post, postal carrier outfit. It tells you I'm going to go deliver some mail. When I wear my suit, you, know, you probably believe I'm, I'm going to preach the word. 
We all wear, our clothing reflects the character and the commitment of the one wearing it. And so in the same way, the Messiah on that day gives praise to God. He gives praise to God because he is the source and the Lord of salvation. Anyways, verse 11 concludes with the final illustration there of the Messiah who will come at his second coming. The declaration that God's salvation and praise will extend throughout the earth. Not only is the praise begins with the Messiah, but this praise will extend throughout all the earth. It will just start growing. It's going to be infusive. Everyone's going to join with the Messiah in praising the Lord. Just like all sorts of plants. It illustrates it like plants and vegetables and trees. They spring up from the earth. You don't have to do anything. You can just come to my backyard and, uh, uh, and you can just see everything grows. I have a lemon tree. I never do anything to it. Uh, I just, you know, just watch it. And it just keeps producing lemons. So it just, I, and I'm like, man, I never water it. I never, you know, give it anything. Uh, okay, once in a while I just cut it. Um, and I really don't know how to prune trees at all. And it just keeps producing lemons. It is so odd. It, the weeds I cut down in my backyard, well, you know what? They, they keep growing too. I cut down these flowers in this flower bed. And you know what? They keep growing back up as well. I don't have to do anything. I never water them. I don't put any neutral grow. They just grow because the soil is designed to produce, by God to cause whatever is sown there to grow. And that's how God's praise is going to be. This whole world, this whole world is going to be full of the seed that is sown by the God, the seed of the gospel, if you will. And that's going to cause them everywhere where man is, they're going to, it's going to result in praise to God. It's going to be throughout all the nations and not just in Israel. For believers today, I hope that we can join in this course of praise. Not just not in the second millennial kingdom, but we can even praise God now. We've already come to know God's salvation. We've already come to know the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. We've been clothed with salvation and righteousness. And if you know this salvation, then I hope you will rejoice because the Messiah is going to rejoice about it. Our Savior is going to rejoice, so let us want to rejoice in that as well. Let us exult in our God. Let our lives exist to bring him praise and glory among all the nations, even now, as lights who have come to know the light of light who is Christ. Well, these are the three characteristics of our Messiah's mission. And I just simply conclude with a challenge to all of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? And why did he come to earth? Scripture is very clear. He has spoken. In fact, Jesus Christ spoke himself. At his first coming, Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. At his first coming, he brought the favor of his righteousness and salvation. But Jesus Christ is coming again. He is the the rightful king of kings and lord of lords. But at his second coming, he will come and bring and declare a day of vengeance a day of judgment, even as he comes to save Israel. Remember then these texts that we've read. Isaiah 59, 17, he put on, not just that he didn't put on just the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation, but he also puts on garments of vengeance with zeal, judgment. In Isaiah 61, 2, that we looked at today, he's going to declare, he came to declare the favor of the year of the Lord, but he will come and declare the day of vengeance of our God. The judgment is coming. You know, we are, uh, in evangelical Christianity, we are excited. We are getting across on this movement of, of social justice. 
And that's not necessarily wrong. Obviously, we who are able to affect righteousness in our society in different ways and our different uh, circumstances have the the and that can have the uh, the freedom to do so, to seek it. But if you, we are truly want justice in this world, we want is to really is to want to see the kingdom of Christ established, just as Jesus prayed in his final prayer, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as in heaven." We want to see God's justice declared. So we, if you want justice, you want it, we need to declare that God is a God of justice. And what does that mean? It means that he's come and he, sent, and he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And he has already paid for every wrong in this world. He's paid for your, all, all our sins so that you might repent and come to know the justice of God. For he, he has put all our sins upon his son if you will repent and believe in his son. And that's justice. That's the ultimate justice that we seek in this world before even the human social justice that many seek today. Will you seek God's justice in this world? Well, let's proclaim God's justice in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the encouragement of this text is we get to see a little more of Christ. We get to see more of who you are too. Thank you, Father, for being a God of justice. A God who has already placed all our sins upon your son on the cross. And thank you, Father, that everyone who believes, whoever believes, will not perish in the day of wrath but have eternal life through your son. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to live in this age, this year of favor that you show abundantly, richly to all mankind. Help us to be, as a peop- your people who have known this salvation, to constantly declare of your justice and your love and your mercy and your compassion to the world. Even as we look forward and await the coming again of our Messiah. We pray, Father, that he would come, that he would come again soon, that he would come and reign as he deserves upon this earth, that he would right every wrong, that he would come to declare to us and to the world the salvation and righteousness that you provide for all through faith in him. Father, we pray that your glory would be made throughout, throughout their world. Help us even now to be faithful to declare your, your, your glory in your son. We ask, Father, that you would accomplish these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, God bless you. You're dismissed.